Many, many good questions again. Um, there's a, a few I may save for tomorrow. I'm going to do questions again tomorrow. So, um, and one in particular, um, the question on delusion, which I think I will. Uh, I'll do tomorrow. Um, it's usually about the time I talk about delusion, so. <laughs> what are some guidelines for practicing meditation while lying down? How do you avoid or minimize the occupational hazard of falling asleep on the job? So, uh, as you may have seen, I do a lot of lying meditation. Um, I, um, in my own retreat practice, I pretty much use the lying posture exclusively for my still posture, and so I have a lot of experience with it. And the first thing I'd say is that unless it's necessary to do lying meditation, I don't necessarily recommend it. I mean, it's, it, it is a challenging posture to uh, cultivate alertness in because we have such a strong habit of, of um, sleepiness, of sleeping in that posture. I mean, that is the posture we sleep in. So we get into the lying posture and our minds go, time to fall asleep. Um, and yet uh, it, it also can be useful if there is physical pain in the body or uh, back problems or knee problems or something that, um, or, or even certain strong energy in the body where it just feels like allowing the earth to support you more fully, that it can be, it can be, um, it can be helpful. What I did find for myself as I shifted to the lying posture when I needed to actually shift to the lying posture pretty much for most of my sitting practice, um, it took a while. You know, anytime you shift posture, change from a familiar meditation posture, perhaps I should say, um, if you're, if you're used to sitting cross-legged on the floor, used to kneeling on the floor, or, or used to sitting in a chair, a certain kind of chair, uh, if something happens where you no longer have that posture available, um, then, and you have to shift posture, maybe you have to do some standing meditation or, or sit, you know, go from sitting cross-legged on the floor to sitting on a chair. There's, there's a shift in, in our experience because our, our minds kind of habituate to a given posture. It's like we, we get familiar with a certain posture in meditation and that getting into that posture supports the meditation. And so any change of posture is going to be uh, a little challenging. Can be, it can be challenging. It can be a little harder to be mindful. We have to do a little more work to stay present. Um, and so for me, when I shifted to the lying posture, um, I decided to do that shift at home before I went on a long retreat because I knew I was going to have to be doing lying meditation on the retreat. And so every day for the month before I went uh, to that retreat, I, I did my meditation in the lying posture. And there was a lot of sleepiness, a lot of drifting, a kind of states of just like fuzzy vagueness. And um, some of that is supported in this particular practice by just checking into awareness. You know, am I aware? You know, the, the shift of, of meditation posture um, again, and to any different posture, can create what feels like a different state of mind. And if we're counting on a state of mind, a certain kind of clarity or a certain kind of um, way of paying attention, a certain experience of breathing even, you know, if you're sitting cross-legged on the floor, the breath will feel a certain way. When you have to shift into a chair, it may feel very different. And so if we're counting on something, uh, an experience, to help us know that we're present, then it will feel like we're not so aware. And yet if we can really just check in, well, am I aware? 
and not be so concerned about the different states of mind, any state of mind we can be aware of. And so in the shift to lying meditation, often there's a little bit more dreaminess, uh, driftiness, haziness, and we can be aware of those. So using that, uh, checking in, am I aware? So really using awareness as a, as a kind of a, a reference point in the lying meditation. And because of the strong habit of falling asleep in the lying posture, it's really useful to have a, um, a way to know whether you fall asleep. Because it is amazingly easy to fall asleep and wake up and have no clue that you've fallen asleep. Really, no clue. And so what I use is my arm at right angles to the floor. You may have seen this, you know, this kind of arm at right angles to the floor. And then if I do fall asleep, the arm will drop. Now the dropping of the arm I've discovered does not necessarily wake me up. I mean, it's kind of different than the sitting posture. If you're sitting and your back is unsupported when you fall asleep, usually your body you know, does, does something that actually wakes you up. The falling of the arm does not always wake you up. It does, and I've certainly noticed as I've gotten more attuned to it that I notice, I can kind of notice the arm kind of doing this. It's like if the mind is getting a little less, less aware, it's like the arm is kind of doing this. And then I can bring a little more intentionality to holding the arm up. And yet, there are times when I, I fall asleep and the arm is down, I wake up, and I had no, no real knowledge. I, so I know I was asleep because the arm is down. And then that's a, that's a little bit of feedback um, about falling asleep. At this point, um, that doesn't happen too much except at the, you know, the ends of the day, like at the end of a long day of practice, I, I do fall asleep in the lying posture. I s- we all fall asleep in the sitting posture. Um, and yet, you know, there, the, there are practices around exploring the mind, moving into those states as well. I won't talk about that in this moment. Um, and so if, if it is something that um, is supportive for your body, um, to do the lying meditation. You're welcome to play with it. Try it. The spaces on the, on the um, window seats are good places to try that. Um, and use, use something to help you r- recognize whether you've fallen asleep. Also, if you snore, it can be um, useful to um, try it in your room. Um, and I find I find I I do snore when I when I fall asleep, um, and um, when I'm at a place in my meditation, there's a certain place in my practice when I've been practicing for quite a while that I don't want to get in the way of the mind, even in the process of falling asleep. I don't want to try to keep the mind awake because of what 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 the mind is doing. Um, there's there's more of a of a sense of really trying to follow the mind into whatever state it goes into, including sleep. Um, and so it, when I'm in that state and not wanting to keep myself awake necessarily, I take myself out of the hall because I don't I don't want to be <laughs> snoring in the hall. <laughs> It's it's a it's a challenging object for our for our fellow yogis. Um, so. Well, it 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 really varies, and um, I used to encourage people to you know if you hear somebody snoring, you can touch them, but. Um, um, there have been situations I- where somebody did that and it was not a good idea to have done that. So, 
practice with the sound. (laughs) Could you give some descriptions of ways the mind resists committing to the intention of continuity? This is an interesting question. Um, if this came up in in um, face-to-face, I would ask some questions. Um, but what this evokes for me, first thing it, it brings up for me, is, um, you know, often our minds, our minds do wander a lot. You know, they wander in various ways. They, they wander into thoughts of the past and fantasy and, um, you know, um, memories or just plain out constructions, um, kind of goes into scenarios or, or whatever. And, and sometimes when the mind is, is wandering a lot, we, um, or, or, you know, at times when it seems like, you know, it's hard to stay present or the mind isn't staying so present, we may um, come up with this notion or an idea that, gee, I must be, there, there, I must be resisting being here somehow. I must not want to be here. I don't know what's underlying this question, but so I'm going to speak to it in multiple ways here. Um, But I'd say the first piece I wanted to bring up is that there is often, I've heard many times people talking about, you know, my mind is just wandering, I keep going to fantasy, so there's something that I'm avoiding. And I say, is that the experience? Does it feel like there's something being avoided? No, the mind is just going into fantasy, but there must be something I'm avoiding. That notion that there must be something I'm avoiding is an idea. It's a, it's, it's, it's a construct, perhaps based on the kind of sense of, well, if I'm not doing what my intention is to be present, then there must be a good reason. There must be, there must be some underlying deep kind of... Um, uh, resistance to wanting to be here. There, there are at times resistances to being present, but very often when somebody asks me this kind of a question, it's just an idea. It's often when our minds are not present, it's habit. It's because we've our minds have done a lot of planning or remembering or fantasizing. And as mindfulness weakens, which it does, mindfulness kind of just loosens because we don't have as much strength in the mindfulness. As mindfulness weakens, the habits emerge. And so it's not, it's not necessarily about any underlying resistance to being present or underlying resistance to continuity. Not necessarily. And yet sometimes there are uh, ways that the mind resists being present. And if that's happening, what I would say is if it's not obvious, then don't assume that that's why your mind is not staying present. so, So what I would say is if there is a kind of an underlying resistance to being present, over time as you kind of are curious about experience and in fact, you know, in the moment for perhaps of the mind returning from being lost in thought, in that very moment when the mind returns from wandering, you know, that's a good place to kind of check in th- about the resistance actually. You know, what is, what is the experience when the mind returns from, from being lost? Is it a kind of like, oh, I don't want to be here. Right there, you can feel the resistance. Or perhaps, and this is perhaps a clue that it's not an underlying resistance, like, oh, oh, I'm back. What's here? There's many ways that um, the mind resists experience. And what I would encourage is if you notice a resistance, 
whether it's to being present or um, to some experience that is in the present, like there can, there can be a resistance to, to practicing. Now that was one way I experienced it. It'd be like, I just, I really noticed not wanting to practice. I'm doing walking meditation. Don't want to practice. That is something that can be known. And when I learned that, it was like, that was just such a delightful eye-opener. It's like, I, I kind of realized when I um, uh, recognized that, and, and I, 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 I understood it because I heard somebody else reporting. I was in Burma and somebody else was reporting. Not wanting to practice arose, and I noted not wanting to practice. And I'm like, you can do that? Wow. Because I, when my mind, you know, when my mind didn't want to practice, I had the belief that either, you know, I was believing that thought, somehow feeling betrayed by my own mind. You know, it's like, no, I, wa- I know I want to practice, but I don't want to practice. Oh, you know, feeling somehow like there's some flaw in me as a meditator or something. So believing that thought in terms of, you know, a meaning. It had a meaning. Um, so I either felt uh, be- betrayed by my mind or I thought I had to convince myself that I wanted to practice in order to practice. The notion of simply noticing, oh, not wanting to practice is happening. This is what it feels like to not want to practice. What a relief. It's so simple. So there's lots of, lots of uh, ways that it can be experienced. And what I would encourage is noticing how are you feeling? If, if there is a resistance to experience, what does resistance feel like in this moment? Does, and and in that res- does that resistance kind of condition a particular pull in some direction or other? I would say probably resistance um, would tend to condition, you know, resistance to practice might tend to uh, condition um, our familiar habits and patterns. What's, what's easiest in the mind is we kind of want to not be present. And so there's, there's no, I wouldn't say there's a, a set of descriptions of, of how the mind would resist this. Um, but what I would encourage is noticing, first of all, noticing whether you are experiencing resistance or whether it's just an idea that there must be resistance because I'm not doing what I think I want to do or the mind isn't behaving in the way I'd like it to behave. So we're, we're kind of assuming a, a, a resistance or assuming that there's some kind of you know, underlying um, uh, thing that doesn't want to be seen. That's another thing that people often say is there's, there must be something that just is just so not wanting to be seen. So can I find that, what, what's not wanting to be seen? And you know, most, m- much of the time it is, it is not that. It is simply habit of mind. So if you are experiencing resistance, notice how resistance feels. If you're not experiencing resistance, just notice what you are experiencing. <laughs> What's here? And if the thought there is something like, I don't want to practice, notice that. So I'm going to paraphrase this question. Um, Noticing many different kinds of thoughts. Thoughts associated with hindrances, thoughts associated with wisdom, thoughts associated with practice, um, you know, am I aware thoughts, that kind of thought sometimes. I start to wonder what thoughts I can rely on. So essentially a question of how do you tell whether thoughts are helpful or not? 
whether wisdom is present or not. So sometimes we can know when when thoughts or not even just thoughts but or our state of mind is trustable and i would say roughly you know i really use the it's one thing i'll say here uh, i'm going to point to the heart use the experience here in this area in the heart and in the buddhist um understanding the word chitta refers to what we in the west refer to as both mind and heart And in fact, um, at one point when I was in Burma and reporting something to um, to Saito Upandita, he said, "Well, watch your watch your mind." He said, "The mind is located in your chest, about two inches left of center." And so this is kind of a seat of the mind as well as what we think of as the seat of the mind in the head. And so um, the feeling in the area of the heart is a very supportive, um, as we really begin to touch into that area and can, and can uh, feel that the quality there. When the heart is undefended, when the heart feel soft, when this area doesn't have a feeling of contractedness or being bound up, often that is trustable. That, that's kind of, and if, there, if there's contraction in this area, if it feels like squeezing or tension or tightness, often there is some kind of hindrance going on. And so that's a very rough guideline that I found really supportive. What's going on in my experience? Is this trustable? Um, You know, there's there's a a checking into this area and if the heart feels soft, it's like, yep, okay. I keep going in this way. So so there can be a kind of a, a, a sense in the heart that gives us a little indication of, is this wisdom or is this confusion? Is this hindrance? Is this aversion or greed operating? You know, sometimes it's, it's actually relatively clear if we simply check, and what's my relationship here? You know, it's like, mm, don't like this. Okay, so there is some aversion there. So there, there, there can be a, uh, on the, there can be an, a kind of a, a recognition of that trustability of the heart. At times we get, we get a sense of that for ourselves when it's trustable and when it's not. And then there's a kind of an area in the middle where it's kind of like, well, I'm not sure. You know, whether, you know, the heart feels kind of okay, but there still feels like some stuff in there. And, you know, this is probably the terrain of mixed motivations. And this happens. We have, we have um, times when both wisdom and um, aversion are, are in there. You know, like when we are... Um, uh, experiencing some kind of dukkha, for instance. And um, there is a, a desire to practice. And so there's some wisdom in that desire to practice. But then there's also a wanting to practice in order to get rid of. And so there's this kind of mixture of stuff going on. You know, so we've got this, we're practicing, and there's some aversion there. And it might not be so helpful to just say, well, I should stop practicing altogether because there's aversion there. You know, so, so there's this large area in the middle where there are mixed motivations. And in that terrain, it's like, this is a learning, this is, this is where we're learning. 
This is a lot of our practice where we begin to uncover and recognize all of those patterns and habits of mind that have fooled us for so long. You know, the delusive power of the mind is is strong to, um, <coughs> you know, when we're caught by some, some um, pattern or um, belief, very hard to see things from another perspective. So when we're caught by aversion, for instance, that mind of aversion has the belief that need to get rid of this in order to be happy. And so it's got that kind of delusion embedded in aversion. Uh, and yet there is, there is also perhaps in that, you know, some wisdom that, you know, yeah, I need to pay attention to this. this it would be helpful to pay attention. And so what, what, how do we work with that? And, and we, you know, we, we, begin, we, we begin to just explore. You know, sometimes we may, we may try, well, let's, let's see what happens if I, if I try paying attention. Like I described the other day um, an experiment that I tried on my mind. And it's like I came out of the meditation hall after having seen a particularly unpleasant physical sensation through awareness. And and it, it had it had been very clear in the meditation hall, and um, and and had been so supportive and helpful. It was very uh, freeing. And then when I as I walked out of the meditation hall, um, some time later, some similar sensations arose, and my mind, you know. S- didn't see the aversion so much, but just said, oh, let me try that again. And, you know, it had been so helpful, so maybe that was some wisdom in there. Let's see, let's try that again. But the the aversion was in there. And as I described to you, you know, I ended up with a multi-hour aversion uh, attack after that because I had acted on that aversion. That was a learning for me, <laughs> you know, so that's, that's kind of the way we begin. It's like, we are not going to get, get it right. It's not going to be perfect in our exploration of acting, exploring, you know, acting in, in the world. There are going to be times when we're acting out of mixed motivations, acting where we think there may be some wisdom, but there's some hidden um, um, hindrances in there. And we, we explore, we, we, we observe, and then we look at what happens. We look at what follows, and we can learn something from that. We, we learn, oh, I see. And, and it, it, it actually wasn't that hard in retrospect when I ended up in that aversion attack. There was something in my mind that understood this was constructed because there it's, it's almost like the mind kind of realized in that aversion attack, it kind of like had the memory, you know, the memory of that, oh, let me try this in order to get rid of those unpleasant sensations. That was there to be seen and understood, even though I hadn't seen it in the moment. I could see later that that had happened. Not by thinking back, where did this start? But, you know, by, by just, you know, recognizing, oh, <laughs> there was a version in that action. And so there was a learning there, kind of like to, to begin to, to recognize what, you know, when we have those underlying motivations that, that can be uh, hidden from us. Um, so that's, you know, we, we do the best we can and we learn from what follows. We learn from the results. And then th- sometimes, um, you know, if there's that question in the mind of, um, mm, not sure, you know, is this trustable or not? You know, if that question is there, it's worth perhaps checking in a little bit. And a useful question there. Uh, the attitude, checking the attitude, checking, you know, what's here? What's here that I may not be seeing? You know, it's like, 
There's something, there's something creating a sense of uncertainty there. And so is there something else that can be known? So just kind of opening up to that. You know, is there something else that can be known here? Just maybe that, that opening up will allow something to, to show up that will help to clarify whether this is wisdom or, or not. So that's one question is the, you know, is there something else here? What else might be here that what's not, not being seen? And another useful question, um, and this, this comes in around delusion as well, because uh, delusion is a lot about beliefs. Um, and so uh, often if there's some something we're uncertain about, it's like there there's there's a kind of a cloud of of uncertainty uh it may be because there's some unseen belief happening and so that can also be a useful question what is being believed right now to begin to to reveal you know uh what might be there and whether this is a a wise action to take. It is easy for the mind to see and accept anicca. What to do when after years of practice it is still difficult for the heart to accept it? Is anicca acceptance something that comes with aging? What to do when one has the feeling of being stuck on this point? My understanding of the question is that, you know, given the, the languaging of heart and mind, um, that it's, it's relatively easy to have a kind of a reflective acceptance to, that we know, we, we all understand, yeah, things are impermanent, but it's much harder for that truth to really penetrate our being. There is a... story in the Mahabharata, the Indian epic. Mm, Kind of a spiritual journey story. And in one place in that story, one of the characters is, is asked a question and, and basically told, answer this question or you'll die. So it's like, stop, you know, pay attention to this question. This is an important question. And the question is, what is the greatest wonder? And this character responds, I'm paraphrasing, because I don't have it in front of me. This character responds that Every day we see all around us evidence that we will die. But the truth of our own mortality never enters in. This is the greatest wonder. That being confronted with the fact of death, only the surface mind understands. The actual sense of that never goes in. So this is a very um, old question. And it is an, an, even being able to name it, I think uh, it's beautiful to be able to name this. That yeah, I understand it here, but 
does it really go in? Do I really get it? And, and the sense of not really getting it at the deeper level. There's some wisdom there. There's, there's some wisdom that understands there's work to do. So how, how to create the conditions for that understanding to penetrate? Often I think we go through our lives without even, um, you know, it, it, it kind of like the, we know things change, but it's like it is just really, it's not even penetrating very far into the rational mind. Um, there's a kind of a, I don't know how true this is, but I'm told that that one time um, a meditation teacher asked in uh, the hall, how many of you are going to die? And about half the people raised their hand. <laughs> and, you know, this is not going in so far. Um, and so a lo- some of the time we are just kind of n- oblivious to this the impact that this has on us. And so one, one thing that we can do is to regularly reflect on this truth. And, and, and one teacher, Carlos Castaneda, actually suggested making it very personal. One um, student of his asked him, or said to him, I just don't feel like I have much of a spiritual life. And he said, reflect regularly. And the Buddha encourages daily reflection or the the tradition, let's say the Theravada tradition encourages daily reflection on the truth of impermanence. And Castaneda said, regularly reflect on the fact that everyone you love and yourself will die your friends, your parents, your children, your siblings. They will all die in no particular order and you have no idea when that will happen. Just bring that into your mind regularly. You will soon have a spiritual life. So the simple reflection on impermanence and in in the the Buddhist, uh, in the Theravada tradition, there's a chant. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that I have, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And then the, the fifth reflection is on, is on um, karma, that we are the owners of our actions. That whatever we do, we are the heir to our actions and our intentions. And so that's more about conditionality than impermanence. But the first four are reflections on impermanence. And this just continual reflecting, you know, bringing it into the mind over and over again, it begins to penetrate a little more. <coughs> Reading uh, the newspaper, one, one thing I explore sometimes or when I see uh, or hear something about, um, it's like it, everywhere, as, as the character in the Mahabharata said, you know, death is everywhere. Evidence of impermanence surrounds us. And yet we don't take it in that it's about me too. Or that it's, it's, I am subject to this same law, this same truth of impermanence. And so the, um, the reflection on it helps to keep it in mind 
and you know something about looking in the newspapers when I, I was talking about as I see things in the news I try to put myself there it's like that that might have been me I could have been in that car on that freeway where that accident happened I might have been in that plane that crashed to remember consciously remember when we hear about aging, illness, death so too for me so too for me and so this is this is a condition that will support this penetration uh, uh, the, the regular reflection on this truth and for me this reflection has, has actually not seemed depressing it actually has inspired me or or it's it's like yeah uh, waking up when i when i when i um remember this and i don't certainly don't remember this every day but when i remember upon awakening this may be my last day on the planet how do i want to spend this day if it's the last day i have you know, it's it's a it's a motivation. It's motivation for the practice for me. It's motivation for the practice. Motivation to wake up and and spend my life in a way that's wholesome. Spend my day in a way that's supportive. And then the practice being with our experience we begin to actually touch into the actual truth of impermanence you know we can we can do this we can play with this a little bit in one place the buddha said to his son cultivate the perception of impermanence When you cultivate the perception of impermanence, it undermines the belief in self. And so cultivating the perception of impermanence, you know, this may be, this is using some reflection in it, the, the, at the beginning. It, it, we use some reflection. And, you know, so I did this on one long retreat. I was a, a veggie chopper on one three-month retreat and every day I would kind of like go in with the veggies and I would use this as, a, as, a, as an impermanence reflection it's like wow there's this pile of veggies here and um, you know let's see you know this is this there there is impermanence here and and kind of noticing that the pile gets smaller and so just reflecting you know just ways to notice that things change we can do this like you know in in simple ways through the day just reflecting you know the shadows change you know the through a day the sun arises in one place and it sets in another place that's change it's just like Recognize that as change. Recognize the body going through different conditions as change from hunger to fullness. And kind of just highlighting for yourself, yes, this is change. So this is a reflection, using it as a reflection at first. And so I was doing this with, um, in many places on that particular retreat, um, various ways of noticing change like from day to day it was the fall in IMS and so from day to day you know the leaves would fall and and it'd be like yeah that that tree had more leaves yesterday change okay so just kind of noting it recognizing noticing it kind of and one day I walked into the into the kitchen and there was this what seemed to me to be a mountain of chard it felt like it was three feet high on the table. And boy, my mind made a thing out of that mountain. And it was like, the, the, the heart kind of sunk. And I thought, no way we're going to get through that in 45 minutes. We're going to be here for days. That was what my mind felt. You know, that, that was the feeling of that, seeing that pile of chard. 
And, you know, I, I was just kind of focused. I just, you know, I kind of noticed that. And I just put my head down and started chopping, take a leaf, chop, chop, chop. And at some point, I don't know, you know, half an hour later, I looked up and the pile was gone. And there was this like instant recognition of impermanence in as a felt sense, not as a, ref- not as a, contem- not as a reflection, not as an idea. It was recognized. I think what it, what happened might be what happened is that the mind, paying attention here, had kept the concept of the pile. You know, the concept of the pile was still in the mind. And when I looked up, and the what was there didn't match the concept, whew, the concept burst, and it's like, wow. There is impermanence. That, and so it was more of a feeling, the felt sense of impermanence. And I, I attributed that understanding as coming because I had been inclining towards being curious about where do I notice change? And so that's another, another exploration. Um, and I, I wouldn't make a big project out of this, um, you know, especially in this kind of practice, um, you know, you will start noticing change. This practice, the the mindfulness, as the mindfulness gets conti- more continuous, the continuity of mindfulness begins to reveal the changing experience. And so we don't have to actually work too hard to start seeing the impermanence once the mindfulness starts getting more continuous. And so... In terms of the the work, I really mostly encourage that. Yeah, am I aware? Just keep that awareness going, and and over time, that that mindfulness begins to um, uh, understand change in the moment, and that is where that understanding in the moment is very freeing, because. We cling to things, at least partly because we think there's some kind of thing to cling to, you know, that it's, it's going to make us happy, it's going to, to be reliable. And as soon as we deeply understand that, you know, not only are things changing, you know, th- but they're changing so rapidly that nothing's lasting even for a split second. And we recognize it's just, it's just suffering to try to kind of, it's kind of like our minds want to stop that flow of impermanence for a little while and say, yeah, let me land here for a little while so I can have some happiness. And so a lot of our clinging is essentially trying to stop impermanence. And stopping impermanence is a losing battle. And there's suffering. Suffering results there. Mm. I won't get to both of these. Let's see. I'll save one of them for tomorrow. I'll save that one for I believe you spoke of wisdom leading to freedom, liberation, awakening. I understand wisdom is about the three characteristics of existence, anicca, impermanence and reliability, not self, as about knowing or understanding them. What about compassion, generosity, metta leading to freedom? Do they work together, as you spoke about? But do they, I think, meaning do wisdom and compassion work together, as you spoke about yesterday, orienting towards relationship? In the context of the Dhamma, spe- specifically meditation, how do we do this? So... I'm going to speak around this topic. Again, if I were in face to face with the in the in the question, I would I would ask some more follow up questions. Um, 
maybe I'll, I'll, I'll address or speak to the question of what about compassion, generosity, and metta leading to freedom? I, I, spo- I speak that, you know, I speak about wisdom as being what frees us. And how do, essentially, can another way maybe of framing the question is how do compassion, love, generosity fit in this um, I spoke to this some the other day as I spoke to um, the path that was described in that one sutta that metta is a natural kind of unfolding given the practice that we do. It is firmly love, compassion, generosity are firmly on the path to awakening. Firmly on the path to awakening. They are cultivated and opened to as we practice. Sometimes in our practice, there is, as I, as I mentioned kind of in that example I gave yesterday, there's more of an orientation towards more, maybe more curiosity or more of a sense of seeing um, change and um, understanding. You know, sometimes the mind is oriented more towards equanimity than kind of the emotional flavor. Um, And, um, you know, how to or... And sometimes the heart is more oriented towards the, the... the compassion flavor or the love flavor. And the first piece I would encourage is just when the mind feels somewhat balanced, when it, when it feels um, like there is an ease with what's happening, take some time to explore that ease. You know, it's, uh, often we are, we are habitually kind of perhaps oriented towards what we're noticing, the thing that we're noticing. And again, you know, the encouragement to step back into the awareness and what's informing the awareness, checking the attitude, checking the relationship. As the mind has the um, more balance of mind, if we kind of just get curious, you know, can can we be curious about the flavor of the balanced mind or the flavor of the non-reactive mind in this moment? Sometimes that flavor will have a sense of appreciation or generosity or gratitude or love or compassion or joy or delight. And so that's a way in which those begin to be opened to more consciously. And sometimes it's as simple as being curious about what's here. You know, what's here? Sometimes, and yet if there's the agenda to say, oh, I feel pretty balanced, where's the love? You know, that, that might um, not actually be what is most kind of relevant to the mind in that moment. It may be what's most relevant is wisdom and understanding. And so not, necess- not artificially or, or kind of necessarily having the agenda there. Um, and yet the curiosity about, about what's, what's here. And again, so that another, another thing to explore might be, you know, again, th- this, this is another flavor of the question that my, my uh, colleague suggests. He said, you know, turn towards the relationship. And in that case, it was interpersonal relationship. So that was an easier orientation in a way um, in terms of, you know, just I'm sitting in front of a person. I can, I can orient to them as a human being. You know, that was like, oh, yeah, I can do that. So that, that wasn't a particularly challenging shift. It's just one that ha- my mind hadn't thought of particularly. <laughs> really? My mind hadn't thought of that. <laughs> You're a bag of aggregates. <laughs> 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 um, so, 
so in in our um, in our meditation, stepping back into you know the attitude or the the relationship, and it's like what's here. Kind of just being curious, you know. So, so maybe what's here? There's something obvious here. Maybe there's the sense of ease or, or calm or tranquility, and then, and then maybe as it's just as simple as. And 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 is there more? You know, just kind of questioning or or broadening the attention, and and what else might be here? So that it's it's just you know. Sometimes our minds habitually look in a certain area, and if we're just inclining to say, is there something I'm not noticing here? That might reveal other flavors that are possible in, in that, that mind. And then in terms of, um, you know, interesting piece of the question here, as I read it, it's like wisdom leading to liberation. What about compassion leading to, to liberation? Is that, does that make sense to talk about compassion leading to liberation? My, my, um, there's I got a couple pieces to just point to with this. I'll try to do this quickly, so do this in the minutes we have left. Um, you know the the on that in that sutta I talked about the other day, it was explored that the compassion, the 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 generos- the compassion, the metta, the joy were a kind of an unfolding, and that we in that, you know that that wasn't sufficient for liberation. But essentially, we had to also recognize, and these two are not worth clinging to for the mind to, f- to, to release. And so there's that piece of those leading to liberation in that, in that we also have to understand the impermanent, unreliable, not-self nature of joy, of metta, of compassion. And then there's another teaching uh, about the connection of the Brahma-viharas to liberation. And, and this teaching, is it, it begins, um, you know, some, some people of other, other religious teachers are talking to the Buddhist followers and they say, you know, we hear that the Buddha teaches uh, letting go of the hindrances. And uh, our teacher, too, teaches the letting go of the hindrances. And, and we hear that the Buddha teaches metta. And our teacher, too, teaches metta. And so, and so what's the difference between your teacher and our teacher? And um, they didn't know how to answer the question, so they went back to the Buddha. And the Buddha said that essentially for, um, that it's not sufficient to simply cultivate the Brahma-viharas. The Brahma-viharas need to be cultivated in a certain way. And here is what he said. I'll read it for Metta. How is liberation of mind by loving-kindness developed? One develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness accompanied by loving-kindness. One develops the enlightenment factor of investigation accompanied by loving-kindness. One develops the enlightenment factor of energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity accompanied by loving-kindness. To me, this mean, this, this, what this points to is inclining towards or, or allowing the attitude of love to accompany the practice of mindfulness. Allowing the attitude of compassion to accompany the practice of the Eightfold Path, essentially. And that is how loving-kindness leads to liberation. And so there's a connection there. And then I will read the quote that I mentioned this morning just to end. 
just as the river Ganges, or whatever great rivers there are, all slant, slope, incline towards the ocean, so too one who develops and cultivates the Noble Eightfold Path slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. So thank you for your attention and thank you for your questions. <laughs>